I think that we've, we've gotten out of optimal balance between the business and the art of everything. So when the business of law becomes more important than the art of law, no justice. When the business of education is more important than the art of education, no learning. When the business of medicine is more important than the art of medicine, no healing. And I think when the business of music is more important than the art of music, then you've lost something. The mechanical nightingale will fail. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. I'm your host, Joe McHugh, and Eric Funk is a man for all seasons, a musician, a conductor, and a celebrated composer. He is also a professor of music at Montana State University in Bozeman and serves as artistic director for 11th and Grant with Eric Funk, an Emmy award-winning show broadcast on Montana Public Television featuring profiles of local musicians. In 2016, my nephew was getting married in Bozeman, and Paul and I were invited to the wedding. Since I had never been to Bozeman, I cast about for someone I might interview for the Rosin the Bow project. Eric became the obvious choice, as he had recently composed an unusual and ambitious violin concerto that was later performed by a gifted violinist from Hungary. In the composition, titled The Violin Alone, the violin not only performs its part in the concerto, it performs the parts of all the other instruments in the orchestra as well. So as these things go, I exchanged emails with Eric, and he graciously agreed to the interview. The wedding was on Saturday, so I booked a flight home late on Sunday, so I would have the day free to record the interview. But when I sent a reminder email to Eric a week before our trip to Bozeman, I received no reply. I sent several more emails over the course of the next couple of days, but again no reply. I left a voice message. Still no luck. So I concluded that Eric must have changed his mind, but even then I was a bit confused. Why hadn't he told me? Then on Friday I received a phone call from Eric. He apologized and explained that he had had a serious medical emergency, really two emergencies, one following close upon the other, and that he had been in the hospital and had gone through surgery. In fact, he had just returned home and was recuperating. I told him we could schedule another time for the interview. I wasn't sure when I'd get to Bozeman again, but I was keen to hear about his concerto, The Violin Alone. Instead, Eric asked if I would be willing to give him a call on Sunday morning, and if he felt he had the energy, then we'd meet at his office and do the interview after all. And that's exactly what we did. And of all the interviews I have done for the Rosin the Bow project, I think my conversation with Eric was perhaps the most philosophic. I attribute this to the fact that he had just days before been so very close to death, and such an experience can be frightening, but also clarifying in its own unique way. Nor was the conversation a short one. We talked for well over two hours, and I've had to struggle in the editing process to select what parts of the interview to include in this podcast. In the end, I decided to divide the podcast into two parts. Part one begins with Eric talking about what happened to him, and then the conversation moves on to a variety of topics related to music and culture. In part two of the podcast, Eric talks about the genesis of his unique violin concerto and his journeys to Hungary to work with a violinist 
and the film crew sent by PBS to document the collaboration and performance of the concerto. So stick around for both parts. You'll not be disappointed, because along with his other talents, Eric is also a great storyteller. Why don't we just start with what happened to you? Yeah, so basically I had a bunch of very unusual, life-threatening health issues kind of all happen in a sequence. And the first part of this was I was teaching a class and being a rather proud professor, rather than letting the class know I was about to pass out, I just was leaning against the smart podium in the classroom. And I said, I think that's enough for today. I let them go a half an hour early. And uh, basically what was going on is I had this loud roaring in my left ear and my heart was skipping beats, like skipping nine or 10 beats in a row. And it was like really flying. And I was had tremendous vertigo. I thought I was going out. And so I just went, sat down with taking my pulse, doing deep breathing. And long story short, um, we ended up ultimately doing an angioplasty. And uh, the angiogram that he just went in, because all of my tests weren't showing anything, and he gets in there and finds that there's a blockage in the left anterior descending coronary artery, which is the nickname the Widowmaker. Because usually you're just like, bam, you're dead sort of deal. So he puts two stents in. And we pretty much think everything is okay, um, except that now we're dealing with heart disease. So I'm on some various medicines and I'm working at cardio rehab. And one day I walk in there, I'm just feeling like a million bucks. And I think, all right, let's push a little harder today. And I tell the, the crew, they've got me all with the leads that they do in cardio rehab. And I'm working pretty hard and I get off the new step machine and I feel a pretty sharp pain. Then I start getting kind of numbness. Then I start feeling like a cathartic emotional thing going on. And I tell the nurse something's not right. And she said, just sit down for a minute. She calls my internist and the internist says, put him in a wheelchair, get him down to ER, like stat. So they get me to the elevator. By the time we get there, my whole face is numb. My left arm is going numb. By the time we get down to the ER, I'm losing my vision and I can't talk anymore. And I'm not frightened at all. I mean, the interesting thing is that you're more, at least I was more perplexed and curious because now a neurologist is asking me questions like, touch your nose with your right index finger. And I understand exactly what he says, but I have no idea where my right index finger is. And so he keeps asking me the same thing. Well, ultimately, uh, after they do the all the emergency tests, they found a significant blockage in the right carotid artery. We don't have a vascular surgeon in Bozeman. It's a more rural hospital, even though it's a sophisticated place. And so they need to emergency evac me to Billings to St. Vincent's Hospital. So I get there, and of course, now you're at a different hospital, and they don't want to use any IV that was put on in this hospital because of the financial liability if something should go wrong. So they want to start all over, do all the tests all over. And I meet the vascular surgeon. And as we're talking, he said he wants to make sure that, that this is an emergency situation because if it's at the 70% blockage, they might be able to deal with, with drugs and, and resolve the issue. Um, but if they do the ultrasound, they find a 95% they're thinking or, or worse blockage, like almost an occlusion in this right carotid artery. And his explanation is that it's a risky surgery, so they don't want to do it if they don't have to because you can have heart attack or stroke. And so 
he's explaining that they're going to put a line into the heart and into the brain so that if either thing goes wrong in the surgery, they're already ready to deal with it on the spot. And so then we start talking and, uh, the guy is so unabashedly honest. I just love the guy. He's really, really smart. And so we're having a wonderful conversation, even though it's kind of a perilous circumstance. And he says that he went into vascular surgery because he realized he's a kind of guy who wanted results. He wanted to see results. And in the medical field, it's pretty difficult to have that happen. But in vascular surgery, you're going to actually see an outcome uh, from what it is that you've done. And then he also divulges, he knows about my PBS TV show and kind of knows who I am and what I do and says that he had been trained as a classical pianist, uh, but then got really interested in jazz piano. And I said, well, I just have to tell you that gives me a lot of peace to know that you have an improvisatory skill set and that you're confident to just let your hands go like the Ouija board thing, you know, and really trust that process because... I would guess, not knowing anything about surgery, that each human being is different and you can't just go by the book. You have to be willing to follow an intuitive lead. And he responded to the affirmative that that's the, often the case, that he has to really trust and he's not going to just go, well, I'm going to do this because this is what we always do. And so um, we went into this thing with me having tremendous confidence in the fact that here's a guy who is highly skilled and also uh, has the confidence of leap of faith, which could save my life if we get into a really bad situation. I'm actually feeling better than if he's somebody who's a real paint-by-numbers guy because, you know, my life's on the line, right? And, he, and the fun part, too, is that he said it was just synchronous and serendipitous that they had discovered the blockage in the LAD and put those two stents in because if they hadn't found that and they'd done this, I would have been out of there anyway. There's no way they could have stopped that. The image that came into my mind, I don't know if it's an apt image, is of you being the conductor, working with this fellow and say, okay, here's this uh, wonderful musician who's going to do this thing. It happens to be on you and your own brain, but uh, I think that's really pretty interesting. And you're like checking them out. Well, who are you and how do you play? How do you interpret this music you're going to make and all right we're in this together is that i think that's apt and i think if you talk to the technicians that i was working with my constant question when they were putting me in the mri and the mra they said do you want headphones and music and i said you'll just piss me off if you give me music because i'd just rather listen to the music that's in my own imagination or i'd rather listen to the machinery but then my question back to them and especially the people who were doing the ultrasound, was that how often do you close your eyes and just listen to what it is that you're hearing instead of using the visual clue? And I was delighted to find out that it was like 80% of the time they'll close their eyes and they'll listen and then that will alert them. And then they'll start looking to see what it is that they're hearing rather than just relying on their eyes, which for a musician is very important because I'm one of those guys who drives with the windows down because I'm going to be a much safer driver if I can hear what's going on. Like you were saying about how you attend to the soundscape yeah. deeply yourself. It's a very important part of what we do. Yeah, this is almost an aside, but in digital editing, which has become very, you know, it's what everyone does now. It used to be you had to cut tape and you remember those days. Oh, yeah. Uh, but now digital editing, you can see the waveform of the sound that you're editing right down to 
individual samples. And you can take out things. And, but you have to be very careful that without realizing it, you've really moved over to the visual plane and you've lost something that you were really after to hear in that interview. Or if you're even producing music because it's, it's, it's becoming so visual. As so many things in our culture are, we're so moving towards the visual, um, sort of having the greatest authority. You go into restaurants and they'll be beautifully designed. The color schemes, the tables, and they'll have the worst music in the world playing over their thing. And you'll say to the waitress or the manager, you know, could you change that or why do you have that music? And, oh, it's an afterthought. It's just, it's there. You know, it's one of the things I talk with my students about every year is that music has been turned into a commodity so that people turn on the lights and they turn on the music. And the problem with that is that no one's actually listening to it. And I sort of joke about how somebody might be driving their car or their truck and if they're using a radio, they try a channel and they go, I, I hate that song. And they go to the next button and they go, I, I hate that song too. And, but rather than turn the radio off, they're going to go back and check the one they hate the least just to have sound in the space. And uh, restaurants, supermarkets, where they're piping music in all the time, I find it uh, I find it annoying. And it's hard for my students. I mean, figure our college freshmen this year were born in 1998. And so they've kind of grown up in a digital world where music is part of a fabric. It's part of an environment. And I tell them, this is going to be a listening class. I'm going to be playing a lot of music for you. I'm going to have music friends come in and play. And I just need to tell you that when I start to play the music, don't start talking. Because that's what they do. You know, when we play live jazz gigs, for example, as soon as we start to play, everybody starts talking. And as soon as we stop, then there's this nervous moment, and then everybody claps. And then as soon as we start playing, then they start talking again. It's the weirdest dynamic. In fact, I sent a cartoon around to friends the other day that they've got this prisoner in a chair with a naked light bulb, and they've got a bass player standing next to him. And then the other guy is the interrogator, and the guy says, I think he'll talk now because I'm going to play a bass solo. <laughs> and it's funny, but it's also sad, you know, and I think uh, getting students to be comfortable with the fact that when I put the music on, it's a, it's a skill. You have to learn to listen intentionally and deliberately and deeply to what's going on. And regardless of the kind of music, the genre of music, um, where the patterns have been developed more complexly, like with a lot of particularly classical music or contemporary classical music or certain kinds of jazz, it's different from music that is more highly commercialized and is highly repetitive, 95% ostinato or repeated patterns, repeated drum beat, repeated bass line, repeated chord progression, repeated melody, repeated lyrics. So you really don't have to listen. It becomes more of a, like a mantra. You know, it's just, in fact, a lot of the commercial music is more chant-like than music anymore. As a storyteller, one time someone gave me a, an idea of how to talk about storytelling. I thought it was brilliant. If storytelling was painting, and the first two questions are fairly easy to answer, but the third one's the one that tripped me up and, uh, and really made me think about what it is. And so in, in storytelling, what are your paints? What's your words? And you like to use a lot of colorful words if you can and unusual words. We're losing a lot of those, unfortunately, in the language. And then, you know, what is the brush in storytelling? It's your voice. What you can do with that's what you paint. But what is the canvas? 
people usually say, and I say, you know, it's the audience. No, the artist has an audience. What's the canvas? And the canvas is silence. And, and it had really changed my entire understanding of what we do with sound. In some theater workshops, the idea would be you add silence for dramatic effect, you know, the dramatic pause. And I think it's a complete misunderstanding. It's all silence. And every sound you put upon that silence, um, it's the silence, I think, where much, much of the energy and much of the magic is really coming from. So to listen to music and to say you're listening, you have to be silent yourself because you're trying to hear the silence. Among all those notes, because it's almost Taoist, that's the non-doing. That's the alternative current right. of the experience. Right. And uh, we live in a culture right now I think is quite terrified of silence. It's become disturbing. Uh, be I don't know. I don't know what demons we're wrestling with. But something's happened. And I do believe, driven by technology in, in many ways, we, we were talking about the, the, the demise of the circus band. And there used to be a circus band that went with these great circuses. And uh, you have these higher wire acts. And uh, they're choreographed to the music. Well, once they got rid of those bands, uh, they started having much higher rates of accidents. Because there used to be a human being there, conductor, who would watch what was going on, and if Bill was getting behind or Sally or getting ahead, they could alternate the tempo. But now that tempo is always the same, and you got to go when you got to go, and you might miss the catch. And right. this idea of the uh, almost McLuhan, the mediums themselves are beginning to drive the entire purpose of music away from its ancient forms of of something that potentially is transformative in some fundamental well, way. Well, and I think it comes back to that commodity piece, too. I th my students are in disbelief and skeptical and ultimately frustrated when they find out that when they go to a Broadway show in New York, 98% of the time, there is no orchestra in the pit. It's pre-recorded music. That the people who are on stage aren't actually singing. It's all they're voicing over. And that the touring shows are doing the same thing, and people are dropping a grand by the time you do the tickets and the car fare and the babysitter and the dinner. So you have to stand up and clap at the end. And the last thing that you want to hear was that it wasn't real, that it was you know being dubbed over. But part of it is that you have a few live musicians who are playing with pre-recorded sound, like Cirque du Soleil is a perfect example of, since we're talking about the circus, where they're doing real sort of equivalently pyrotechnic gymnastic activity that things have to be timed exactly. But when you remove the elasticity element and you don't have that ability to, to ebb and flow with what's going on, you are in trouble. Um, when I've conducted ballet orchestras, watching the dancers and getting a sense of where they are, what they're pacing, that jump, that lift, did they get a good takeoff? Or they, because you can't just have this gorgeous moment and hold a fermata. They've leapt into the air and they can't just stay up there, right? They're gonna fall down. Um, but it is a, I remember being at a nightclub, I'd gone to hear some friends of mine play and only to find out that they'd been fired because they weren't playing the way that it was on the record, which was already philosophically very upsetting and frustrating for me. But I decided to stay and hear the people that they'd replaced them with. And it was one guy and five drop dead gorgeous women. And they were um, playing, and they sounded they sounded pretty decent. And I, but there wasn't there weren't a lot of people there, so I decided to hang around and check them out. And something didn't feel quite right, so pretty soon I kind of move over to the side. So being a gigging musician myself, I'm kind of aware of the stage and the backstage. 
And I suddenly look and I realize that this guy's got a reel-to-reel tape recorder behind him, old school, uh, 18-inch reels. And uh, he has timed his chatter. He's got 18 seconds of leader, 18 to 20 seconds of leader between cuts. And so he just starts talking. He's timed this all out. And then once he starts counting the tune off, the tape hits. And I realize that all of the microphones are turned to zero, all the amplifiers are turned to zero, and that it looks like the girl on the bass is playing the bass and the girl on the guitar is playing the guitar and the singers are actually doing it, but they're not. Nobody's doing it except him. He was a really good keyboard player and he was actually live, but everything else wasn't. So being now really activated, I go find the manager and lodge a complaint and I say, this is an outrage. And his point was a real indicator of what's going on. He said, it has to look good, and it has to sound good. And we really don't care if they come from the same place. He said, we are serving conventioneers. They want to come in. They want to see beautiful women. They want to hear great music. And that was the, that was his solution. And I thought, this is so wrong, you know, on so many, so many different levels. But, you know, what's a guy going to do, right? Well, you've brought up a subject to me that or a way of talking about it that has been very disturbing to me. And I have found that if I ever do broach the subject with musicians, it brings up a lot of emotion, both positive and negative, against what I'm saying. And this goes back to this idea of what are inaugurations. And in the very ancient idea, sort of Joseph Campbell's understanding is that inaugurations are are a form of making a king or coronations are profoundly important rituals for a culture and profoundly important for the person going through it because they are, just like this wedding I came to here in Bozeman, my nephew, they are leaving a state. It's almost a death of who they had been as a single person. Now they're a married person, right? Well, somebody who's a private citizen might have a great campaign staff, but now they're going to be president or king. And their self-interest has to die to this greater interest. And this is, goes way back to King Minos and the golden bull coming out of the ocean and Poseidon saying, this is a sign you will be king, but on the day of your coronation, you must sacrifice this golden bull. It's magnificent. Animal. We can't do it. So he finds another golden bull, almost as nice. He kills that. Then he goes off to war. And what does the bull do that he didn't kill? Sleeps with his wife, makes her pregnant, she gives birth to the Minotaur, half man, half beast. In that story, it's interesting because Minus comes back and doesn't blame his wife. He knows it's his curse. He, he had slipped by the requirement. Well, Obama's first inauguration was very cold. And Yo-Yo Ma, Itzhak Perlman, wonderful musicians, don't play the music. It's pre-recorded because it's too cold. And when that happened for me, well, I didn't know that at the time. You know, they, were, they looked like they were playing. And later, he was on NPR the next day, I think, is where he said, well, we didn't play. It was too cold. Now, technically, they could have played back in the rotunda because everything was being on huge televisions anyhow. But it would have really played the music. And it was John Williams, too, which is a person mostly associated, often associated with film score. So there was this sense of something that had been produced to create, we have done the inauguration. But I felt something had really slipped. Something authentic had been left out. 
in this new mentality that says, of course you would do that. It was too cold. It was too dangerous for the instruments. Rather than not do it, you know, we're going to deliver the show. Oh, no, I find it very upsetting. In fact, I've thought a lot about redoing in the spirit of a Peter and the Wolf or a Tubby the Tuba, you know, children's thing, and resetting the story of uh, the Nightingale, the Hans Christian Andersen, where you've got this Nightingale that sings so beautifully, and the Emperor wants to have the bird come and sing, and finally convinces the bird to come and sing, and the bird sings, and basically the Emperor wants the bird to sing whenever the Emperor wants the bird to sing. And ultimately, uh, somebody, one of his minions, invents a mechanical nightingale, which will sing whenever he wants it to sing, just pushes the button and it sings. And so the regular nightingale goes back to the forest, and eventually the emperor starts to die. And the nightingale, the mechanical nightingale, breaks. It won't work anymore. And not only is it not providing enough substantive art to fuel the spirit, but it no longer functions. It's Baruched, right? And so the emperor is dying, and they go and tell the, the real nightingale, and the real nightingale comes back and sings and brings the emperor back to life, but the proviso is, I'll come and sing whenever I want to sing. In other words, when it's right to sing. And you guys are from Olympia, so you know, you're well aware of Marty Nixon in Seattle and all the, all the people in this country who have seen Audrey Hepburn in My Fair Lady thought she was singing, or Natalie Wood was singing in West Side Story. And it's all Marnie Nixon. It's all voiced over. You know, she did all the voice between she and, and Ema Sumac. It was all voiced over. And yet everybody got so upset when the Korean girl at the Olympics wasn't the actual singer because the actual singer was a homely girl. So you're hearing her voice, but you're seeing the pretty girl. So you're back in that, in that same dilemma, or when I was talking to a, a very famous um, artist from the 50s, I won't name his name, but we were having a telephone conversation about American Bandstand and the Ed Sullivan Show, and I said, so I'm going to ask you a tough question, and I, I'm pretty sure you're going to dodge me, and I said, but I'm going to ask you, because we all watched American Bandstand back in the late 50s, 60s, you know, when this stuff was coming out of Philadelphia, and then all the other, Ed Sullivan Show, and I said, so... Were you singing? Was that live performance or was that uh, pre-recorded and you're just mouthing the words? Or you're actually singing but they have everything turned off and you're just trying to line up. And he dodged it very artfully. He said, well, you have to understand that the sound guys in those days were just watching VU meters. They weren't real sophisticated guys. And he said, we're talking about if we perform on American Bandstand or The Ed Sullivan Show, in the next three days, we're going to sell 185,000 copies of our record if we do well. He said, if you're going to be trying to do this in real time and really perform on stage with somebody who doesn't know what they're doing with the sound, you get feedback and you get delay and everything falls apart, you've just lost a huge market. So the business of the enterprise, and this is a big problem, I think, in the culture, not to get too far into this, but I think that we've we've gotten out of optimal balance between the business and the art of everything. So when the business of law becomes more important than the art of law, no justice. When the business of education is more important than the art of education, no learning. When the business of medicine is more important than the art of medicine, no healing. And I think when the business of music is more important than the art of music, then you've lost something. 
the mechanical nightingale will fail. Exactly. I was fortunate in that I was born into a music family. Both of my parents were professionally trained musicians. Uh, both played a couple of instruments that were trained as opera singers. There are four of us kids. I have an older brother, an older sister, and a younger sister. This was in Montana? Uh, yeah, we were born in Montana and grew up a lot of our lives in Montana, a little time in southern Minnesota, and then back to Montana. It was not uncommon for our parents to wake us up by singing its opera day which meant that you had to sing everything. You had to sing for the cereal and the milk, and you had to sing to your brother, when are you going to get out of the bathroom? And you had to sing what time it is, and your parents are singing back to you, and when are we going? And it's embarrassing when you're 10 years old and you don't realize it's not opera day at school, and you walk into class and uh, launch into a big recitative followed by an aria about the, how beautiful the day is, and they're all looking like you, at you like you've lost your mind. But... The point being that music was such an, a part of, of who we were. It wasn't something that we did. It was just like breathing. Well, you don't, wouldn't think ordinary, normal people or whatever. <laughs> rephrase this. People wouldn't normally think of Montana as being a great place for opera because you, know, you would think, People came from Europe, they settled in New York City and Philadelphia, you would have an opera tradition. So now we're talking Montana. Yeah, so give me a sense how your parents got to this music. How far back does this go? And then why are you doing opera day? <laughs> well, the trick is that there was a fellow, in fact, my brother and, uh, and one of his colleagues uh, just finished a book about John Lester. John Lester was the vocal coach at University of Montana in Missoula. And word got out pretty quick that if you wanted to get into the New York Metropolitan Opera or you wanted to sing in the Berlin Opera, you studied with Lester. He was the guy. He looked like Douglas Fairbanks Jr. I mean, he was a very handsome, dashing man, and he was a very strong vocal pedagogue. So my brother and one of these students who ended up going to the Met and then ending up in Berlin Opera as a professional career came out of that studio, as did Judy Blagan. I mean, all of these really famous singers. Once the word gets out that the doorway to New York is in Missoula, you know what's going to happen is a bunch of people like my parents uh, who both went there independently, my mom born in Deer Lodge, my dad born in Bozeman, 
and they both went to study with John Lester, and they were in his studio, which is where they met, no pun intended, but getting really involved in the opera repertoire. So then as we're growing up, you know, you're hearing your parents singing Verdi and Puccini and Gounod and, I mean, just all of the opera repertoire was part of the, of that whole scene. But going back to your grandparents, how did they get this passion themselves? Where's music come through through the family, or did it not? Is well, it... I mean, on my mom's side, her father really saw her as a Jenny Lind. He was from Cornwall. He came here with his father in the late 1800s. He was something of an amateur musician. He played the organ, and he composed a little bit. It was fairly trite, but he was sincere. Uh, but he had a deep love of music, and he has this only child, his daughter, who sings like an angel, and he's just like convinced that she's, and she was an amazing soprano, still sings. Uh, she's in her late 80s, and just, it's like a stunning voice. My dad, who grew up here, was from a very poor family, nine kids, and it was just, it shows the synchronicity and the and the beauty of great music education, because in a Montana school, and they were so poor that they tended to move whenever the rent was due. And um, basically, there were these two guys that were hired, a band director and a, and a choir guy from St. Olaf. And they were hired in this little town, and I think it was either Belgrade or Manhattan. I can't remember which town it was. And Dad was uh, one of the kids who just got pulled into this world of the magic of music, that these guys opened a world to them. And Dad was a natural singer as well. And he just started heading into music. So these two guys who come out of St. Olaf in Minnesota and up in Montana, they spawn all this interest in these young guys. And I watched my dad uh, go through his professional career, become a conductor, take professional choirs to Europe, taking third place in the world at the International Eisteddfod in Glengochland, Wales. And it just like, and all the people that he influenced as a music teacher, and my mom as well, it's like, it goes exponential. So the trigger, there really wasn't any music in his parents and not really the, any of the siblings. They were mostly athletes. They're still famous in this town, the Funk Brothers. There were seven of them, and they were, they, they played a game against the Globetrotters, an exhibition game, but they were Northsiders, so they were from the poor part of town, so they couldn't actually get in the varsity squad because of prejudice against the poor kids. But they ended up, one of my uncle Don, whose nickname was Blackie, was like a major uh, MSU Bobcat. In those days, it was Montana, Montana State College Bobcat football quarterback. So most of the most of the people that are old timers from here know who these guys were. They were all real handsome, dashing, dangerous guys. And Dad ends up being this crooner. So when I brought him here for his. Uh, high school reunion, like 50th reunion, he's singing songs and these old classmates, they're just like swooning, you know, listening to him sing My Funny Valentine and Laura and The Nearness of You. And he's, and I'm playing piano for him and he's just like, he's slaying them. It's like uh, Frank Sinatra meets Vic Damone and <laughs> Tony Bennett all wrapped in one guy. And even in the service, you know, he did a lot of singing and he played some piano and trumpet and jazz bands and big bands and did some crooning. When the, I mean, this whole world is just like a magical world. Because Dad wanted to take his choirs uh, to Europe, these were like semi-professional choirs. They had to do fundraisers 
well, guess who the family Von Trapp was? That would be us, the four of us kids and my parents. We had uniforms. We did a two and a half hour concert, started with sacred music, six part uh, sacred motets and hymns. And then each of us played at least three instruments. We also sang. So we had various trios and duos and all styles of music. Ultimately did an album of my brother's vocal jazz arrangements. Dad sang on it as well. I mean, it's just been an amazing, I mean, to us it wasn't abnormal because it's just the way life was. But yeah, it was just like from that point, I think when my parents met and they were so completely immersed in a musical life, then their kids came on. Mom had us out performing. I was two. And she said, I was the one with the memory like a steel trap. So my brother, older brother and older sister would look at me for the words because they couldn't like remember the words. And we're singing all these. She's got old, we had old recordings of us singing for women's teas and church fellowship things. And we were a real dog and pony show. What was the role of religion at that? Was that uh, important? Um, in a funny way. Dad because he was a school music teacher and we're from that generation where one parent could work and the other one could be a stay at home. And mom was the stay at home because that was what was tradition in the, you know, back in the fifties. Um, dad always had a church choir and w the church choir that he had was the church that paid the choir director the most because that's how he augmented his income. So we started out, uh, in the Methodist church and then we were in the Lutheran church and we were in the Presbyterian church and we we're back in the Methodist church. And then, by the time we moved uh, out of Montana and moved back to Oregon, he was at the uh, the American Synod Lutheran Church. The can't even remember what it's called right now, but it was the big Lutheran church in Portland, and he had the Portland Symphonic Choir, and he had all these professional singers became part of the church choir. So it was like a ridiculously good choir, and we kids always sang in the choir. We sang in mom's children's choir, and as soon as we were old enough to jump into the adult choir, we were in dad's choir. And even when we were off at college, if we came home to visit for Thanksgiving or Christmas, we were singing in the choir. <laughs> Just, it was like expected, you will be singing on Sunday. So, it, you know, kind of, we grew up with different liturgies, but we had such a broad sense of the hymnody, everything from the Episcopal through the Presbyterian, the Methodist, and the Lutheran hymnody. And then my brother fell in love with a Catholic girl, so then he took instruction and became Catholic. And uh, yeah, it was just, it was always part uh, of that world. Um, I think as we grew up, we I was probably the most investigative in terms of religion. And so I had three friends of mine in, in high school and we went to a different church every Sunday to try to find out what those guys thought, what their whole ideology was. And that expanded out to you know, looking at different kinds of world religions and trying to figure out if there was any religion in the world that didn't have an exclusivity clause <laughs> where you either had to wear this outfit or you had to, you know, do this sort of creed, you know, where was this idea of one embrace concept? But it definitely spawned a deepness in me around the role of sacred music. So when I was actually hired here in Bozeman to take over the church choir at the Lutheran Church, and they thought, because I've done a lot of jazz playing, that I was going to come in and really rock the house. And I said, that's not going to happen. I said, my dad actually left his job as a church musician because they were really getting into the folk thing. And I can't do that because to me, it's antithetical. To me, music in, the, in a sacred setting is a vehicle 
that takes the listener into a deep place so that they can have a, an amazing experience. It affords that opportunity to happen. And I don't want to be part of something that entertains them while they're at church because they're like looking at their watch and they're getting bored and how long is this going to go on and let's have a little entertainment. So I did. I, I kind of dredged up the old sacred repertoire. The last year I was doing the the Hope Lutheran Choir, I, I hired an orchestra. We did the Foray Requiem. I did uh, Messiah. But I did it in the way that it was done in Handel's Day, where you only have 18 singers in a small orchestra. It's very intimate. It was never meant to be done with a 100-voice orchestra and 200 singers, you know. It, just, it changes the nature of it. In the folk tradition, places like West Virginia, where, where I'm more familiar, often the violin was looked on askance. You know, this is not an instrument that should be part of the sacred service, but voice is, whether it's shape note singing or whatever. So what was your experience growing up, particularly in, in all this vocal music? Because I'm fascinated by the relationship between the violin and singing and the voice, the human voice, whether it's the cello, the violin, the viola, how that all works out together. And you just mentioned having these orchestras in, in the things you were doing. So uh, when you were growing up, what, when did the violin sort of come into focus for you as an, or the violin family of instruments? Well, one of my dad's best friends was Bob Beers, Fiddler Beers. And Bob and Evelyn usually stayed with us when they were on tour. I don't know if you knew Fiddler Beers, but he was an old buddy. And this was in Lewistown, Montana way back in the day, both he and dad drove school bus in addition to teaching uh, for extra money. And uh, Bob and Evelyn ended up settling in upstate New York and they started the big folk festivals up there and they brought Lynn Redpath over. I mean, they were just like huge uh, in that world. And so I heard Bob play fiddle and he played it real old style with an actual bowed willow and he'd play it against his belly or in the crook of his arm. And he played a folk harp with his legs wrapped around it and sort of perched on his tailbone on an ottoman. And he was a really good psaltery player. My brother played the violin and the viola, so we had one in the house. Um, and of course, my dad being such a romantic, we grew up with all of the Russian romantic music and all the violin concerti which of course my brother wanted to play along with the record and would constantly be playing it somewhere in the house. Um, in the church setting, there's something for me, I always felt that instrumental music was more pure. It's a strange thing to say because we were a bunch of singers in our family, but I always felt like human voices wrecked it. It was like the instrumental music for me was like closer to the actual pure music. And so if I could hear something where somebody wasn't singing, it took me to a deeper place. So I wasn't so distracted um, by the human element. But then you start factoring in, you know, once I, once I started teaching in an inner city school and I was dealing with, you know, largely black musicians and I was going to gospel church and I was getting into a world where the intention was to make contact with the divine and it meant ditch the ego. So it's back to taking us into the music. And it was all about this improvisatory gospel style of singing. And so getting so far out of yourself that it didn't matter if they were playing a, a violin, a piano, or they were singing. It was all about letting go, you know, and it was so amazing. And you just 
as I tell my students, go go to something like that. Just go to any gospel service or any temple thing, and get pulled into that world. And it's uh, it's a very otherworldly experience. But again, I think it's an egoless experience. When I perform in church, I'm co coming at it from a completely different place than when I perform in a commercial venue, when I'm in a secular venue. And I think it has to do with the humility factor. And part of it, I mean, one great example is I was going to play a, I think it was a funeral. And I just was like getting really, I would get in a collective grief was starting to wash over me. And so I'm kind of sitting there in a prayerful state and I'm thinking like, if you want me to do this, if you want me able to pull this off, I'm going to need a little bit of help here because I don't know if I can pull this off. And I got a loud and clear, first time I actually got the loud and clear message, get out of the way. Get out of the way and it'll be fine. And I did. And I played like I had never played. I was like watching my hands just like go and I'm like in wonder as this incredible stuff is happening. But I think, you know, the, the fiddlers and the violinists that I've heard play particularly when they're a cappella, when they're like an a cappella voice. If you think about the nakedness of the human voice out in the forest or the nakedness of a harmonica or a fiddle out in the woods, you know, you're camping and it's just the sound of the night sky and you get that plaintive sound. It's just heartbreaking. It's so beautiful. It's like, what is that? We're so musical human beings. We just, we, we respond so much to sound and to pattern and organization, but there's something, it does, almost doesn't matter what the tune is. It's just when, when that sound starts to go through the air, it, it pulls us into some, something, a kind of a, it can be a longing for home. It can be something like that or a nostalgia. It's always better than sentimentality. I mean, it's never really modeling. It's something better than that. And I think it just reminds us, maybe it reminds us of something that's really magnificent in its simplicity. The other night, my wife and I were at a festival just before we came here, and we were outdoors at um, 11 o'clock at night. It was dark. We were under the stars with very close friends playing this old traditional music we play. And my violin just, I was out of the way of it. It was singing on its own. Every note was beautiful. And everybody knew it, too. And all the music, all the other notes were beautiful. You know, But the fiddle was leading them you know, into this melody. And and I've had that experience many times, but it was particularly strong just a couple nights ago. So this idea that maybe we have this implicit memory in a species or in our souls, uh, that yeah. we know this other realm and uh, something triggers it. And it's not an explicit memory. You can't really put your finger on it. In fact, I've become somewhat distrustful of people in spiritual traditions who say, this is how it is. This is what it looks like. And this is how you have to behave. I'm sort of wary of that. And maybe that's why I find in music something that doesn't seem to demand that of me. It's more comfortable in its ephemeral nature to say, it's, it's this. And uh, isn't it cool to remember? Well, and you know, in a, in a spiritual tradition, you have a lot of folks coming in with a lot of wound. And uh, words aren't going to penetrate, but music will. You know, somebody can't give you advice when your heart's broken. Just no way. I mean, it's hard enough to try to sing. You just can't draw your air in. But somebody can take out the violin, you know, for example, or the stringed instruments generally, but 
because of the of the range of the violin, its compass. Um, you don't blow into it. It's not like a flute. I mean, I suppose you could, but it'd be kind of silly. But the the point is, is that it's it's continuous. The sound can just keep going. It's like a wind in the trees. You know, so you don't have to. And and they get this fluidity, as you know, as a player of your bowing hand, where you can just get this silky, uh, endless. It's like you have a circular bow, and the sound is just emanating, and it's almost like you're drawing it up. You know, and maybe you are drawing it up out of, I think, implicit memory, as I understand the term, things that I remember from when I was three, four, or five. Those are the memories of somebody who was three, four, or five. They're very pure. They'd be different if I was my age experiencing the same thing. I would remember them differently. That's there's a music in that. There's a music in the in the violin of the voice, if you will, you know, just even if you don't understand what the words are, you're not even listening to the words. It's just, it's the dynamic and the inflection and the tempo of that reassurance that uh, somehow offers you something that can afford a healing that nothing else can, because it's not advice. You know, what do they say? Unasked for advice is criticism. And I think when it comes to, you get into a, a circumstance where something is pretty tough. And I think for most people, most of the time, there's always a something tough that's happening. And now in a world that's so technologically advanced, we're compassion weary. We're not discompassionate, we're empathetic creatures. But when you hear about a warehouse explosion in China, within 40 seconds of it happening, and you can't just set it down, you're carrying it around and you're carrying that around with what's going on with ISIS, and you're carrying it around with, with the dilemma of what's going on uh, in the racial culture right now. I just synchronously finished a, a new work um, based on the book by Linda Brandt called Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl that was published in 1861 in Britain, actually written uh, by Harriet Jacobs, uh, who's somebody that a lot of folks don't know about, but she was a very mistreated black woman. And uh, I basically took lines from her thing and created a one-woman show and then brought this incredible mezzo-soprano from back east, Lori Brown Mirabal, to sing it. We did here in town with a high school band accompanying her. And she and I decided, as she pointed out, why should I, as a, as a black artist, do one more song about black life in the slavery era? She said, let's have a companion piece, a second part to this, where we have all these people responding to this story, but also what's going on in contemporary culture, so that you have, you're giving ear to the, this police officer's position and what they're facing, and you're and this person's position and this person's position, and you've got a cutaway side of a bus and a and a subway car and a park bench, and you've got all these voices right now talking about what all this means and and taking that cognitive dissonance, as Dr. King put it and letting it be unresolved with the idea that maybe a better resolution will emerge than the bumper sticker black and white thing that we were so quick to do because we are compassion weary. I think a lot of modern art, or at least has been put forward, is we're going to tell the truth, which I think is a tremendous hubris. I don't think the truth can be told. Joseph Campbell used to say, the tongue cannot utter the name of God. No tongue. And if the artist is being looked at, 
by society, by a world of some hurt and pain. Just you would look to the pastor, but they don't look to the pastor, many people now, especially have come through the academy. It's sort of, you know, pretty much understood that if you're a sophisticated person, you know, religion is a, is a nice thing, but it's it's not a path to anything fundamental. Although I, as I point out to my students, I don't think that that science and religion are mutually exclusive. I think what happens is human arrogance comes into play, and you can have you can have religious zealots and you can have scholarly zealots. You can have sophomoric arrogance in any field, <laughs> but I think there's a certain point where one has to acknowledge the fact that we're only human beings and that there's a limit to our intellectual compass, and there are things that looked for with the intellect cannot be discovered. But I think that for a while, certainly, the idea of rationality was if it's not measurable, it's just off the table. Oh, it's still alive. I mean, I'm okay. surrounded by it. No, okay. I, I agree with you. The secondary problem is that there are so many people involved in the clergy who can't do the one thing that they're supposed to be able to do best, which is listen. They just orate. And so I don't think people go to council because they don't, they've found somebody who only has a broadcast system. They have no port, you know, for, for collecting and gathering and actually hearing what's going on, which is an important thing. You know, I have a friend in town here, Rabbi Ed Staffman, who is, uh, he has that skill. He can actually listen. I'm not Jewish, but there's something about talking to him. There's a buoyancy that comes from his ability to become opaque. He's got, probably because he was a criminal lawyer before he went into rabbinical studies, he's got a fairly complex skill set. But it's rare, and it shouldn't be rare. Nor should it be like back in 88, I, I suffered a, a stroke-like onset of a neurological disease, and I ended up in a wheelchair for a number of years. And I thought it was so ironic that I had to be psychologically strong enough to be able to reassure the public when I was out in the wheelchair so that they wouldn't be uncomfortable. And I thought, how wrong is that? How mixed up are we as a culture where that the person who is suffering has to go, it's, it's okay, it's, it's fine, everything's fine. You know, it's, it's just, it's a very strange, we're, we live in a world full of paradox. And I think music, you know, getting back to our fiddle and getting back to the violin, music has a way of, of jumping over all that stuff. You know, and I agree with you. I think wanting to be a truth teller is a, is a noble goal. Thinking that you are one is folly. But I think being honest and, and operating from the right place, um, I was fortunate in that my, my teachers were so, so insistent because they were carrying a legacy of the masters forward and they were not going to hand me this torch if I was going to water it down or diminish it in any way. I had to not only carry it full force, but I had to bring something else to the table. And so they taught me a way of, of composing that is so perfectly crafted that will, it will withstand the test of time. It's just, you're down to every fine detail, stuff that no one would ever notice, but it's all part of a fabric that is so exacted. So that's part of making sure that what you've heard and that what you're trying to transcribe and manifest in this plane as music is as accurately captured as it possibly can be. Then, because I'm the composer and not the performer most of the time, if I'm conducting, it's a different story, but still, I'm giving this 
to someone else. So, for example, with the concerto we talked about a little bit earlier, finding somebody that you can trust who understands that detail level and can operate at that detail level. Now you've got an important union. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet The Fretless. Our interlude music was performed by violinist Sven Ronin, concertmaster of the Tacoma Symphony. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. I leave you now with a quote from Mark Twain. The fear of death follows from the fear of life. A man who lives fully is prepared to die at any time. ¶¶